Thank you, Andy. Good morning. And good morning, uh, very new friends and old friends. It's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, It's quite a sombre passage today, and I guess that might be appropriate for where we are as a nation at the moment, as we look at the story of Stephen. Stephen appears just in two chapters in the book of Acts, Acts 6 and Acts 7. But to kick us off, any cricket fans in the room? Any, any big cricket fans here? Uh, one or two, you see. Now, Miles, you're going to be watching this about Wednesday, I reckon. Because <laughs> that's about the pattern. So this one's entirely for you, my friend, as I know you're a bowler. So sometimes when you're playing cricket and the delivery fails, and it fails repeatedly, you need to back up and look at your run-up. And you'll sometimes see professional cricketers doing this. They'll turn around, they'll pace out their run to make sure they've got the right number of strides. They'll change their angle slightly, and they'll take a fresh run-up. Sometimes when the delivery fails, you need to take a fresh run-up. And that is what I think Stephen is doing in this passage. He is taking a fresh run-up at the story of Israel and the Israelite people. And in fact, it's kind of what we did a sermon series ago, if you remember, when we talked about God's story, your story, and our story. And we talked about how they overlapped. And we went back to look at the story of Israel. We used... uh, um, a book by Tom Wright called The Storied World of the Bible. And we went back through the Old Testament narrative because you might remember this verse from 1 Corinthians. For I handed on to you at the beginning, you see, what I received, namely this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Bible. That is, in accordance with the story of the Old Testament. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Bible. And that is what Stephen is doing when he's before the Sanhedrin. He is retelling the Israelite story to the Israelite court themselves and showing how it points to the person of Jesus. But before we look at that narrative, I don't know if the word, if me using the word story about the Bible causes you a problem. I know it does for some people, because when we think of a story, we think of fairy tales. We think of bedtime stories read to our children under the sheets, once upon a time, happily ever after. But actually, we all live stories. We are storied people. When you get home from work and you're sharing a meal over the table with your family, with your loved ones, and people ask, how did it go at work today? What you do is you tell a story. You you tell a narrative of what happened, the conversations you had, those people you spoke to, the interactions, perhaps some of the meaning you derived from that. So stories need not be fairy tales. Stories can be entirely true. We tell stories about true events in life to explain them to others and to give them meaning. 
In fact, more than that, stories can be extremely powerful. Stories of empire, stories of national identity can send people to war, often misguidedly. Stories can persuade people to storm a capital building and hold it under siege. Stories can open us up to great possibilities and horizons and things that we never thought that we would achieve. And bad stories can profoundly affect our mental health and how we feel about the world. We all construct internal narratives that help us make sense of the world. And the stories that we tell about ourselves really matter. What sort of story do you tell about yourself? Is it a positive one? Is it a negative one? Is it one that is full of possibility and hope? Or is it one that's tinged with catastrophe and disaster lurking around the corner? Sometimes those stories that we tell about ourselves need challenging. I'd barely been in this church a few months when I was on the school run. One of the privileges that I have is that I was able to take my kids to school on a regular basis. And I walked past a member of this congregation pushing a pushchair as I went to school. And I said to them, morning, and they blanked me. They just walked past me. I spent the next three days, I perhaps wasn't in the best frame of mind at that time anyway, but I spent the next three days going, what have I done to offend them? How did I, how did I get it so badly? I must have, and I finally plucked up the courage on the Sunday to say, have I done something wrong? I, I, I spoke to you on Wednesday, Thursday. I said, sorry, I just didn't see you. I was miles away. No, no, you've done nothing wrong. I'd spent three days with an invented narrative where I'd been torturing myself that I'd upset this person. And in fact, it was an entirely a narrative that I'd made up about a situation. Erwin McManus said this, The Christian faith grew through story, not text. Only later did the stories become scripture. And while the scripture must be held in the highest regard, we must not neglect the power of story. Or how about this, about how stories develop? Storytelling is in general a communal act. Throughout human history, people would gather around, whether by the fire or at a tavern, and tell stories. One person would chime in and then another. Someone would repeat a story they'd heard already, but with a different spin. It is a collective process. Our stories are created by community. We have community narratives about how we are. We have a narrative we tell about us as a church that we pull together. This is my favourite quote. Stories, it turns out, was crucial to our evolution. No, more so than opposable thumbs. Opposable thumbs let us hang on, but stories tell us what to hang on to. That is a good quote. So that's what I think Stephen does in our reading today. He tells a story. 
He retells a familiar story in a fresh, new way. Who was Stephen? Well, as I said, he only appears in these two chapters in Acts. We first meet him when, remember last week, where they appointed deacons to carry on the work of caring for the widows and the orphans and those that had been overlooked. Stephen is one of those deacons. He was a holy man, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. But we go on to read this. Oh. Roland, we, are, we lost the, um, the thingy. Can you f- move my slide forward? There we are, we're back. Good. Um, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. But opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue, who began to argue with Stephen but they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Next slide. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Basically, they fit Stephen up. He's, making, he's having such an impact on the community around him that they rally together false witnesses who, uh, who testi- testify against him. And he finds himself up in front of the religious court, the Sanhedrin which is where we picked up our story today. Stephen goes right back to the beginning of the story of Israel, starting with the founding patriarch himself, with the story of Abraham. He recalls how God said to Abraham, leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. And God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land Well, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and later Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. He is setting his story in the narrative of the Israelite people, starting with Abraham himself. Then moving on to Joseph. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Stephen is starting to drop in bits of their story, the less positive parts of their story. That actually within their history is this story of betrayal and of Joseph being sold into slavery. Then to Moses. Remember, he's accused of blaspheming against Moses. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Again, reminding them, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. 
Do you see what he's beginning to set up here? He's saying, even in the person of Moses, you missed it. God was going to rescue you, and you missed it at that moment. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. This is to Moses. For the place you are standing is holy ground. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. And this is the same Moses that you rejected. Our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. See, what Stephen is doing in his speech is he's reminding them of their story. He's reminding them of the faithfulness of the patriarchs, of, of Abraham, of Joseph, and of Moses. But he's also pointing out the times they made, made mistakes. He's reminding them of the good and the bad, of, life, the, of the choices they made that led to life and the choices they made that led to death. What's interesting is there is a tradition of this within Scripture itself. If you read Psalm 105, it's all of the successes of the Israelite people. And then Psalm 106, right next to it is the narrative of all of their challenges, struggles and failures. You remember this quote from previously, that the Israelite people are bearers of both the promise and the problem. Or Martin Luther put it like this, they are simultaneously sinner and saint. It's at this point Stephen moves on in his narrative to the temple itself. Remember, he is talking to the religious court, the representatives of the temple. Our ancestors had the tabernacle, that was the tent that they met in in the wilderness. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made these things? And you continue so bullheaded, calluses on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared to talk about the coming of the just one, that's Jesus. And you kept up the family tradition. Traitors and murderers, all of you. You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift-wrapped, and you squandered it. It's fair to say Stephen doesn't pull any punches, does he? In fact, I would kind of wonder, was that really the best approach? I mean, he must have known where this was going to go, I think. He has absolutely picked a fight with the court in front of him. You know, I, I, I sometimes we think that every character in the Bible has to be an example that we should follow. Perhaps in this instance, I might encourage you, 
if you're ever behind a religious court, maybe this might not be entirely the most successful approach. Because when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the tops of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. I think what we have going on in this passage today is a clash of understandings, of ways of interpreting this great story. There is the traditional old interpretation held by the temple and the Sanhedrin. And then there is Stephen in the light of Jesus trying to offer a new way to understand their narrative, a fresh perspective. And we find them clashing. Interestingly, I don't think it's an unfamiliar story in the life of the church since then. The old familiar narrative and fresh new ideas and them butting up against each other in argument and disagreement. So really, that's our story for today. But I just want to leave you with three thoughts, three ways we might apply this as we go into our week. The first one... It reminded me of a famous quote from Martin Luther King. Life isn't worth living until you have found something worth dying for. Whatever we think of Stephen and his approach, he had absolutely decided, and he'd been so transformed by his encounter with Jesus, that this was going to be the way he was going to live and the way he was ultimately going to die. He had gone all in for the story of Jesus. And he has found something clearly that is worth giving up his life for. How about you? How about me? There are days when I think yes. There are days when I'm not sure. Have we found something that we would lay down our lives for. Also, did you pick up that bit at the end, this character Saul that appears at the end of the narrative? I wonder what the impact of Stephen's witness was on this character Saul of Tarsus. We read, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that's it. There's just this small moment within God's story, where Stephen's story and Paul's story overlap. And I wonder what impact that had on this young man called Saul. He would go from here and continue to persecute the church. He would be responsible for them scattering. But I wonder if in the back of the mind, back of his mind, there wasn't ever something about the way he saw Stephen carry himself. The way he heard Stephen explain the story of the Israelite people that didn't trouble Saul of Tarsus. Because interestingly, he would go on to do the same thing. In fact, Paul, as we know him, by his later changed name, would retell Israel's story very much in the light of the way Stephen did it. And I do wonder what impact this brief encounter with Stephen and his faith had on this man later in his journey. And for us, maybe we never quite know the full impact of the things we do 
The times when our life might just overlap with an individual. And we have an opportunity to share something of faith, have the briefest of conversations. We never quite know how deep that will go and what fruit it might bear in the future. And then the last thing, as we started with this idea of story, of of telling the story of Israel, God's story in the world, I want to finish with this question for you. How do you evaluate a story? I've said there are stories all around us. There are stories we tell about ourselves. There are stories in the world. There are all sorts of stories fighting for our attention, true ones, helpful ones, less helpful ones. How do we evaluate a story? Well, one of the ways you can evaluate a story is to compare it to things like archaeological evidence, records, other writers. And you'll find that the gospel story, the story of Jesus Christ, there have been many people who've done that over the years, who've taken a look back at the record in the New Testament, looked at archaeological records, looked at at other references, and have done an examination Um, Perhaps the original one is Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morris. But there have been others since, particularly a good one by Lee Strobel, written more recently. Did you know, for example, that there is more evidence of the existence of Jesus Christ than we have for Julius Caesar or the Battle of Hastings? When's the last time you doubted the existence of Julius Caesar or the Battle of Hastings? But actually, when lawyers and journalists have gone on to investigate the evidence for the New Testament story, they have time and time again found it to be true. But then there's more than that. How do you evaluate a story? Perhaps you evaluate a story sometimes due to the impact that it has on the world. The way it changes people, the way it changes things. It's interesting that the Jewish, um, the Jewish people already had a history of martyrs. There were martyrs going back for several hundred years before Stephen. But when you look at the accounts of Josephus or Maccabees, the martyrs of the Jewish tradition all died cursing those that were killing them, calling down God's wrath and judgment upon them, calling for God's vengeance And then you have this character, Stephen. And you read, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I think in Stephen's words, you hear an echo of another story. The echo of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This story has brought about a shift, a change. Instead of breathing down fire, brimstone and judgment, here is a man at the end of his life, echoing his saviour, calling out for the forgiveness of those that are persecuting him. How do you evaluate a story? How do you evaluate the story that you are living within? Perhaps partly you can look at the evidence, but partly you need to look at the fruit And how does it help you live in the world? So friends, today, as we move on to communion, I just want to leave you with a question about the story that you are living within. How 
beautiful. How helpful. How hopeful is your story. And if you answer not very, then can I commend you to find a better story to live within? And can I commend you the story that Stephen found worth dying for, worth laying down his life for, the story of Christ, the story of, his Jesus, of, of this Jesus and his love for you. Let that be the shaping narrative, the story that forms how you live in the world, the story that shapes your national identity, the story that shapes the way you serve. Because I guarantee you will find it a beautiful, helpful, hopeful, sometimes painful story. But one full of life and vitality and possibility. Amen. Let's, um, let's pray together, shall we? Father God, we thank you for the story of Stephen. We'll never know quite the impact that he had on this character, Saul of Tarsus. But I suspect it was deep and lasting, even in their fleeting meeting together. Lord, help us this week as our paths cross with individuals, not to underestimate the power of the influence that we have, to speak a kind word, to share a moment of hope, to bring light and life into people's lives. And Lord for, Lord, for those of us that are here that are living within a story that is perhaps unhelpful, that is holding us back, a story we tell about ourselves that is dark and that is difficult, Lord, help us to turn ourselves over to the story of Jesus, to the, light, to the story of his light, his life, his love and his hope in the world. Lord, shape us, give us a better story to live by. One that breathes forgiveness, not hatred. One that breathes hope and not despair. One that breathes love and not hate. And help us to live that story as part of our story. Just as Stephen did. In Jesus' name. Amen.